Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I think you've got our attention. Your presence has drawn us in. I pray today that, uh, that our attention would produce fruit by the hearing of your word. For you said it was faith that comes by hearing of your word. So as we open up the scriptures today and we read what your prophet wrote, I pray that it be more than just words on pages, but it would come alive to us by the working and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would enable me to say what you want me to say today and to to avoid what I would want to say. Speak to us, Lord God, in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Making the main thing, the main thing. You've, you've heard me reference the late Ern Baxter who often said, if you get the top button in the top hole, all the rest of them work out pretty good. If you get the top button in the wrong hole, nothing works. Today we're, we're talking about the top button. Making the main thing, the main thing. And that's because we live in a world of distractions. We live in a busy society. We, we live in a world that tugs at our attention, at our tugs for our allegiance. And it's hard to avoid it, but there's always an opportunity to be distracted. Now, sometimes those distractions are good and sometimes they're not so good. And we have enough goings on in our world today uh, to, to get into the not-so-good category. And it's a slippery slope when we find ourselves giving our time and our energy to something besides the main thing. Everybody say the main thing. It's a slippery slope when we find ourselves devoting ourselves to something that is not the main thing. Now, how, how many of you understand that if you have the main thing, there may be some other things and the other things are not necessarily evil, but you got to have things in perspective and understand about the main thing. And so the beginning of a new year. Now, by the way, remember, I was going to bring this message last Sunday. I know this is January the 17th, but beginning of a new year is a time of assessing and reassessing. It's a time of taking inventory. It's a time to ask questions of our lives. The truth is, I wish we did that year round. I don't know why it is that when the year turns over, we're motivated to begin to take inventory and reassess our lives and make resolutions that we're never going to keep. Well, we might keep them a week, especially those that relate to food. (laughs) But how, how do our lives shape up? In relation to God's purpose, how does your life shape up in relation to God's purpose? By the way, this is not a message intended to bring condemnation on anybody. But I'll say this, if the conviction fits, wear it. Let the Holy Spirit do his work. What consumes our time and what consumes our energy? Just taking inventory of our own lives, what consumes us? Every day, every hour. How much of our life, how much of our life efforts are done through the lens of your kingdom come on earth like it is in heaven? How much of what we're doing can we see through those lens? 
Jesus prayed, your kingdom come on earth like it is in heaven. And that's our role as the church is to serve the kingdom of God in the earth. Well, we're going to look, as I said earlier, at the book of, I'm going to say Haggai. If you like Haggai, more power to you. When you go to the pronunciation websites, they give you both. And so I'm going uh, Deep South Haggai, chapter 1. And if you don't know where Haggai is, well, he's dead. But if you go to Malachi, uh, Matthew, you can go Malachi, then go Zechariah, and then I think there might be another one. No, it's Haggai and then Zechariah. So you're, you're near the end of the Old Testament. Uh, if, if, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 15. If you would stand with me while we read these. Um, and I'm going to change up today. I'm going to throw you a curve. I'm going to read from the New King James today. It's just a couple places I like the wording. Uh, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple or house to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And that's what we're doing today. He said, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And now, how many of you know when God says something, it's important? How many of you know when God says it twice? It's really important. Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, said the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God in the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. We need more of that today. Then Haggai the Lord's messenger spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. You can be seated. Now, for a few moments, for a very short few moments, I'm going to do my best Rob Shearer imitation. It'll be short, but I want to talk about the history of the captivity just briefly. And uh, if I, if you don't answer a question that you have, go ask him. Uh, 
we're, we're finding ourselves in a, in a time in history when Babylon had, had risen to power probably around 640 BC. It doesn't really matter that much, but somewhere in that range. Babylon had risen to power. And in 605 BC, uh, Josiah, King Josiah, uh, he tried to keep the Egyptians from aiding Assyria, and he died in that process of trying to fight them. By the way, uh, King Josiah was probably the last righteous king we see in the, in the people of Israel. Uh, on November the 8th, I did a message called, Have We Replaced the Word of God? Dealing with King Josiah, if you want to go back and get that. In that same year, Nebuchadnezzar defeated those Egyptians uh, when uh, Josiah was trying to keep the Egyptians from aiding Assyria. And after... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the nation defeated the Egyptians. Babylon became what we'll call the imperial power for the next 70 years. The imperial power. Now, during this time, Jeremiah, the prophet, was repeatedly warning the people of Judah and, and their leaders. He was warning them about their sins that they had not repented of as a nation he was warning them about the idolatry that they were embracing. And God said, you'll have no other gods before me. And yet they were. They were they were worshiping idols. And he was also warning them of the folly of trying to make unstable alliances against Babylon. You're trying to find other people to fight or to resist Babylon. And Jeremiah was warning against this. He also warned that uh, this would bring the judgment of God and the, and the vehicle that God would use would be Babylon itself. And yet, in that same year, 605 B.C., King Jehoiakim burned the scroll of 25 years worth of Jeremiah's preaching. They brought the scroll to him. They kept, this is what Jeremiah has been saying. It's not good for you. It's not good for your kingship. And so he, he took it and put it in the fireplace and burned it, uh, which is a blatant defiance of the word of God. Sometimes people hear a person preaching or teaching or prophesying something they don't like and they want to burn it, put it in the fireplace. The point I want to make here, this was the attitude of the nation. And this was a sign. And so in 587 B.C., and of course I'm shortening this, 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and took most of Judah into captivity in Babylon. And this is where God tells them, you're going to be here for 70 years and you're going to be in captivity and then I'll let you come home. Now, we're going to fast forward. We're going to skip the 70 years. That's the fast 70 years, wasn't it? We're going to fast forward to when the exiles return. When uh, when the Babylonian captivity was over, not all the exiles returned. As a matter of fact, Daniel, Daniel went there as a very, very young man, probably a young teen, middle teen at the, at the oldest. We think Daniel lived to about 82, 83, 85, maybe somewhere in that range. But he, he never left Babylon. He stayed, died there. But most of the exiles returned, or a lot of them did, and they began to rebuild the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. You can find that in, in uh, Ezra 3.8, by the way. 
They began to rebuild the temple and to, to bring this thing back to where it was before it was destroyed. Opposition arose. Their opponents came. And here's what their opponents said. This is so typical of opponents. Their opponents said, hey, uh, let us help you. Let us help you build God's house. Let's, you know, we, we, we're we with you. We, we've got the things going on. And these were the Samaritans. And and other people that were a mixed group of the of the nation of Judah, but they were they were. But God had specifically said to the nation, only those who came back from Babylon can rebuild the temple. Why did God say that? So they resist the opposition, and they basically told them that, look, you're not welcome here. We're going to rebuild the temple. We don't need your help. God's going to help us, and so. The opposition kept coming after them, bringing accusations, offering bribes, everything they could do to keep the nation, the exiles, from rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. So much so that it came to a place, someone came to the king and said, Hey, you better stop building that temple. It's not going to be good for you. How many of you know a politician has always been a politician? And they always make their decisions based on what's beneficial for them. Well, that opposition caused the cessation of that rebuilding project. They stopped. You can find that in Ezra 4.24. This cessation lasted for 16 years. They laid down their tools. They laid down their efforts. And they ceased rebuilding the temple. And it sat, I don't know how far along they got, but it sat incomplete, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> incomplete for 16 years. God, you say, why did God wait 16 years? He's got this strange notion that he's God. He had a reason. He had a reason to wait 16 years. I don't know what the reason was, but after 16 years, he sent Haggai and Zechariah to prophesy to the exiles. And he called the people of God back, everybody say back, to their task. Uh, And by the way, I don't know exactly what this means. Somebody smarter than me can figure it out. The the, the name Haggai means festive or, or celebration. Maybe maybe God was calling them to celebrate the rebuilding. Zechariah, his name means Yahweh remembers. There's something there that's, again, somebody smart than me can figure that out. But they began to prophesy to the children of Israel that they need to get back to work. And Haggai begins to talk to them about their condition. The old song, I heard Willie Nelson saying, I just stopped by to see what condition my condition was in. Well, their condition was not in good condition. He said, because you consider your ways. You've planted much, but you harvested little. That's not good. I'm not a farmer, and I know that's not good. You have food to eat, but you're still hungry. You have plenty to drink, but you're still not satisfied. You put on clothing, but you're still cold. 
You earn wages, but it disappears down an invisible hole. He said you put it in a purse or a bag with holes in it. Anybody ever felt like that? Don't raise your hand. Where is that stuff going? The Bible says that the opposition to rebuilding the temple tried to discourage the exiles. Discourage is a word that means to drop your hands. To drop your hands from the effort. It means to give up. It doesn't just mean to feel bad or feel discouraged, but to be discouraged means that you cease whatever it was you were doing. You drop your hands from the project. And this is what happened to the exiles. They had lost their energy. The exiles had lost the energy they had to rebuild that temple. Let me ask you a question. What have you abandoned because of struggle and difficulty? Let me ask you another question. What have you stopped giving your attention to and giving your life to because of what's happening in our nation today? What, what have you, what have you ceased doing because you're discouraged about what's going on around us? And whatever that is, I'm going to do a, another imitation of Haggai and Zechariah and tell you, put your hand back on the plow and, and get back to doing what it was you're supposed to be doing. I don't know what that is. So the Lord stirred up the governor and the high priest to get back to work. It's interesting, the word there, stirred up, that he that the, in the Hebrew is a word that means to awaken, but better yet, it's a, a word used of musical instruments being awakened or warmed up for playing. I don't know about y'all. I love to go to a concert or you hear this more in a symphony setting, but you hear those uh, instruments being warmed up. It's, it's terrible sounding. They're, they're not playing together, but they're all warming up their instruments. I love that. You know why? Because I know what's coming next. When that conductor raises that wand or baton or white stick, <laughs> take your pick. I'm about to hear something really good. And I think this is what why that word is there because as he's stirring up the the, the uh, high priest and he's stirring up the governor and they're beginning to make movements inside of them, I believe God says, okay, well now we're going to watch what happens. The children of Israel, the children of Judah, the exiles, they had forgotten that the temple of God was something bigger than a building. I remember, again, I grew up in a Methodist church. I remember as a child, the preacher one Sunday, of course, you know, back then we got a new preacher every two years. I never could remember their names. By the time I did, they'd leave again. But I remember the preacher teaching us a novel idea that the church was not the building. And I thought, well, I mean, I've heard people call this place the church my whole life. And here's this guy saying the church is not the building, but it's the people in the building. Well, it's not even that, really. It's the people, period. They had forgotten the temple of God was something 
bigger than it was where God hung out with his people in that setting, in that covenant, in that era. Is the temple was where God hung out with his people. I don't forget that. We're going to come back to that. Taking God's house lightly meant they were taking God lightly. And he says to them, you took, you're taking my house lightly because you are satisfied with living and, and, and sprucing up your own houses. Now in, in our world, if you say we've got paneling in our house, we think, well, my goodness, every redneck's got that. Every, you know, that's, that's cheap junk. Well, this wasn't the kind of paneling he's talking about. Talking about very fine, exquisite. And God's saying to the people, you spent all your time fixing up your own house. What about my house? You have not given attention to my house. You, and so they took God lightly by taking his house lightly. <laughs> it sure is quiet in here. I hope y'all at home are making more noise. Because all of us find ourselves from time to time not making the main thing the main thing. We have drifted. They didn't have a time problem. They had a value problem. I mean, that's that for, it was set for 16 years. They didn't have a time problem. They didn't value God's house. Evidently, God did, and God expected them to. But they, they took care of themselves. And by their own actions, or more accurately, their inactions, they were saying, God, we're building our houses instead of yours because we value ourselves and our comfort more than we value you and your glory. Now, they wouldn't have said that, I hope. But their actions said that. What are your actions saying? I know y'all wish I'd just say some nice platitudes and go on, but I can't do that. I, somebody said, I thank you for preaching the truth. I said, I don't know any other way. I make people mad sometimes. I, I, I don't do a good enough job because I don't make enough people mad. But mm, what are your actions saying? What are my actions saying to God? Well, they responded. They got the governor and the priest got stirred up and began to talk about we need to obey what the word of God says. What a novel idea that we would obey what the word of God says. And in verse 14, they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They went back to work and rebuilt the temple. Because of the word of God, because of the repenting of their sin, because of their inaction, because of their misplaced value, and because they had ceased to make the main thing the main thing. We, God's people, must first prioritize our lives in such a fashion that puts God and his purpose at the top of the list. I said earlier that the indication of a main thing means there are other things and not always things that are evil, but if they're out of order, they're evil. 
And anytime I think of prioritize or priorities, I think of my friend who just passed away two weeks ago by the name of Jerry Lanier's. I told the home group about this Wednesday night. Jerry Lanier, some of you who have gone to Gatlinburg numerous times probably met Jerry from Monroe, Louisiana. Jerry and I, when we'd see each other, he'd run over and hug my neck and say, man, you're the greatest guy on earth. And that's why I liked him so much. (laughs) He made me feel like, uh, he he made me feel better than I really am, but I took it. We were, he, we just, we loved one another's company, even though we didn't spend a lot of time together. But those of you remember Whit Bass, he's in the same church as Whit Bass. <sighs> Let me tell you how I met Jerry Lanier's. 1975, my father-in-law and I went to a camp, a Christian camp retreat in Andalusia, Alabama. If you ever been to Andalusia, Alabama, you weren't going anywhere else. You were going there. It's on the, I mean, you you throw a rock from Andalusia and land it in Florida. It's down that far down. Three speakers. We had three speakers at that. I'm not going to go into all that. But one of them was Jerry Lanier's. This is 1975. What was interesting, and I shared this with the home group, what was interesting to me was this January of 1974, Jerry was a Catholic priest, and he dispensed of his vows as a priest and got married. And until his death two weeks ago, he was still married to that same girl, Susan. And so it just was a novel idea. Then I'll I'll come back to that. But uh, two years later, Brother Charles Simpson is having a a men's conference in Jackson, Mississippi at the Holiday Inn. I step off the elevator, and there's Jerry. I hadn't seen him in two years. And so we reacquainted, and, of course, from then on it was on. But that conference... He spoke on God's priorities. Now, I'm going to have William put that up there, but you're not going to be able to read it. These are the actual notes from that conference. I still have them. And one of the reasons I still have them is because they're so important to me. Not just that my friend Jerry Lanier spoke these words. He said the priorities of the Christian life, God's priorities... And he did it in this order. And this again, this was this was a novel idea to me, and that is God, then family, then our job, and then our ministry. See, back then we were thinking, man, ministry was everything. And all a job, that's just a necessary evil that we gotta do. Put some beans in the cabinet. But Jerry brought us and brought me to thinking about putting job, vocation, ahead of our ministry. And he went on to say it involves government and order. God, Jesus, becomes Lord. Family, the husband and wife, uh, responsibilities. Job, not witnessing as much as being a witness. And ministry becomes a direct consequence of our priorities. I learned that day during that conference how to prioritize my life. Have I always done it? No. But I still have the notes to remind me from my friend Jerry Lanier's. As God's people, we have to prioritize our lives. We have to put things in the proper perspective, in the proper order. Are we neglecting God's house? We pay the price if we neglect the mission of building God's house. 
Uh, And when we devalue God's priorities, and I think those are, nothing we do or obtain will satisfy our needs. We have holes in our pockets. Nothing will create that satisfaction in our hearts and our spirit. Like like observing God's priorities and God's mission. I can tell you today that if your life is empty or missing some satisfaction, you have probably misplaced the value of God in your life. You've probably gotten your priorities out of whack, out of order. You do not have the main thing as the main thing in your life. He says in verse 8, go up to the mountains, your Bible will say hills, and bring wood and build the temple. What we need to build God's house is found in the mountain. What we need to build God's house can be found and will be found in the mountain. What does the psalmist say? I will look to the hills. From where my help comes from. What is the mountain? The mountain is that place that we draw close to God. Draw close to his presence. And if we're going to, if we're going to give our, our attention, ourselves and our priorities to God, we're going to need to focus on the mountain, the hills where we find our help. I love to read. I'm, I'm reading two or three books right now. But you will not find what you need to build God's house in a book, except this book. And even in this book, you need the Holy Spirit to work it in you to produce it. So what is this house? I mean, obviously, we thank God for this structure. Thank God that we finally got all the leaks fixed. It cost a couple of bucks, but we finally got them fixed. Thank God that somebody had enough sense years ago to make our landscaping look like something other than somebody backed up here with landscaping, threw it up in the air, <laughs> and wherever it landed, that's where it was. I mean, thank God for that, but this is not, this is not the building. This is not, I mean, it is the building. This is not the church. And in some, some senses, it's not God's house. I mean, it's God's house in the sense that none of us own it. God's house. What is God's house? Paul tells us in Ephesians. He says, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Elaine talked about moving here from Oklahoma. I I dare say I could count on one hand, no more than two hands, how many people sitting in this room and watching me at home are from Tennessee. Uh, I'm not from Tennessee. Of course, my wife and I, we've been living here for 34 years, we lived in our home state 20 years, so this is really home. You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, see that word? In whom the whole building being fitted together. Maybe sometime we'll talk about that fitting process. It's not comfortable, by the way. 
grows into a holy temple. Did you see the word temple? In the Lord. To whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. What is God's house? God's people. What is the temple of God? His church. Not the church building, but his church, the people. We are his house. We are the house of God. The church, the, those who are assembled together, I don't mean just in a room on a day and a time, but those who have been assembled, assembled our hearts and our minds and our efforts and our energies together as God's collective of saints to serve and further the kingdom of God in the earth. That's God's house. What are we doing? Somebody sent me an email yesterday, a friend of mine in South Carolina. <laughs> it was a poem, and it started out something about, uh, he said, do you have anybody in your church like this? And uh, well, nah, I'm not going to look at it. Uh, and, of course, it started out saying something about a suit and a tie, and I said, uh, well, you lost me on the first stanza. Other than my grandson, sometimes there are not, no neckties usually. But anyway, and it was like, do you go to church and just sit there and put some money in the in the basket and feel good about yourself and don't really you know, go home and nothing's changed. You're the same person you ever was, that kind of a thing. And I said, I'm sure everybody, every church has those people in them, but I pray that none of us are those. Peter said, you also as living stones are being built up as a, spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Making the main thing the main thing. What is the main thing? It's giving ourselves to the building of God's house. We're the stones. We're the, we're the stones. We're the bricks. We're the living stones that God is putting together, building his church. I can tell you this. That God won't take us up into the mountain. He says to us to go up into the mountain. Did you see that? He said, go up to the mountains. We want God to take us. We want God to force us to go to the mountains. God says, I want you to make a choice. I want you to make a choice to seek my face with all your heart. I want you to make a choice to prioritize your life in such a way that my mission is at the top of the list. I'm at the top. You shall have no other gods before me. God, and that you would serve your family and that you would give yourself to your job, your place of vocation. With everything you've got, be the best you can be. Bring the kingdom of God to where you work. And we talk about prioritizing our life and we talk about making the main thing the main thing. I'm not talking about being people who run around spitting out spiritual platitudes all the time. I hope I don't offend anybody. Actually, I don't really care. (laughs) It's really hard for me to talk to somebody who can't say one sentence or two sentences without trying to quote me a Bible verse. I just, it just irritates the fire out of me. Why? You think, you say, well, don't you like Bible verses? I sure do. But usually when a person can't talk to me without quoting Bible verses, they're hiding something. Whoo, it got quiet. 
I've told you before, I can deal with a demon-possessed person quicker than I can deal with a religious spirit. Religious spirit is vile. Well, okay, you're getting off on something else. Go up to the mountain. God won't take us. He invites us. Come to his presence and find what we need in his presence to build the house. That's where we're going to find what we need. Lord, help me. Micah 4.2 says, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Therein we find what we need to give our attention to God's house, God's people, God's church. It wasn't until they changed their spiritual value system that God did something about the holes in their pockets and their lack of satisfaction. It wasn't until they made the main thing the main thing that God began to restore those things to them. It wasn't until they observed and prioritized their lives in such a way that it would satisfy God's order. And then God began to restore to them. Matthew 6.33 in the 1996 New Living Translation says this, And he will give you all you need. Everybody say, all you need. From day to day. If you live for him and make the kingdom of God your primary concern. The kingdom of God your primary concern seek you first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things that you need will be added to you but first foremost and fully we must give ourselves to the what does that mean it means that i must have jesus christ the king of kings the lord of lords the master the potentate the creator of the world to be my lord not just in name only, but that he would be the king of my life. And I would submit to his authority and obey him. That's what it means. We are a kingdom church. We are a kingdom-minded church. I was reminded this week to tell you we are not a Republican church. We are not a Democrat church. We are not a conservative church. We are not a liberal church. We don't worship the donkey. We don't worship the elephant. We worship the lamb. Now, you may be any of those things, and that's fine. And I've got an opinion about those things. But Abundant Life Church doesn't identify ourselves with any party. By the way, did you know George Washington, one of the last things he said... On his way out, the door was, don't have parties, don't have factions. The forefathers of our country said the political parties be the worst thing we could ever have. Here we are. But as long as I'm the pastor of this church, we're going to worship the Lamb of God. We're going to be kingdom-minded. And we're going to extend the kingdom of God where we live, where we work. Where we play, 
because that's our mission. That's the house that we're giving our attention to as God's people. I hope you're good with that. Final statement from James Montgomery Boyce, a reformer. He said, what we need is the right people living in the right place, wanting to do the right thing for the right reasons. Let that be Abundant Life Church. Stand with me.